Hello and welcome to the Clinical Update podcast from MIMS Learning. I'm Pat Anderson, editor of MIMS Learning. MIMS Learning is a clinical education website for GPs, hospital doctors, nurses and other healthcare professionals. And in this podcast, we'll bring you key learning points from our CPD modules. As well as primary care, we provide in-depth learning in specialties including respiratory care, women's health, oncology, and so on. And as editors, we'll aim to bring you learning tips from these topics in turn. Please bear in mind, we're not clinicians, we're medical editors, but this podcast is aimed at healthcare professionals and is intended to inform your clinical judgment. Today, we'll focus on a learning module about sustainability. We'll talk to Dr. Ravi Ramanathan about appraisal and revalidation and we'll revisit green issues at the end with an unexpected learning nugget drawn from our regular research briefings. I have with me here Dawn Powell, whose medical editor role includes editing specialist respiratory CPD. Welcome Dawn. Hello. We're going to discuss a learning module on the site entitled Reducing Emissions from Inhalers by Dr Pippin Singh, who's a regular GP writer for us. Now, this module is very primary care focused, very practical, talks about how GP practices can make a difference by reducing use of metered dose inhalers, which have a poor carbon footprint. In the module, it's stressed that this is worth doing because inhalers alone are responsible for 3% of NHS carbon footprint. And we use more metered dose inhalers than our European neighbours. A common use for these inhalers is to deliver short-acting beta-2 agonists, which are known as SABAs. And best asthma care involves ensuring that use of these agents is proportionate. People shouldn't be using more than two of these inhalers a year. So the module outlines practical steps that GPs and their teams can take to improve asthma care and at the same time try and reduce carbon emissions. This can include switching patients to a different type of SABA inhaler, such as a dry powder inhaler or a soft mist inhaler. The module outlines a path to follow, identifying what you want to achieve in your GP practice, who should be involved, and the potential barriers to success. It also provides additional practical tips on asthma control. So Dawn, when we discussed this earlier, you had a few questions. Yeah, I think because you're sort of saying inhalers alone are responsible for 3% of the NHS carbon footprint, which does immediately make me think, well, what's causing the other 97%? And uh, should we be focusing on that instead? That's a good question. And I think the point of this module is that the inhaler thing is something GPs can do, and it's important. If you start looking at the 97%, vital though that may be for people to do I think as an individual GP you're going to feel swamped quite quickly and a lot of it is going to be outside your control so Dr Singh is advising really that you should decide on your initial focus such as Saba inhalers and then stick to that he does point out that other issues may arise such as over or under diagnosis overuse of medication and so on and these are all good issues but he advises if just take one part of the puzzle and focus on that and then you'll achieve something. Okay, I mean, I think, yeah, that makes sense. Though I do think, is it fair to ask a patient who's well-controlled in the current inhaler, they're not having any issues with it, simply to make a change because of sustainability? Even though, I mean, admittedly, that's going to have good effects on the planet, which will help them in the long term, but their personal health is not affected. That is a very important point. I think it's crucial to the whole thing. In the learning 
module, Dr. Singh does emphasise that a shared decision-making process is vital. Swapping to a different inhaler may not suit very elderly people or the younger age groups, and patients may not want to change, or it might be difficult for them to learn how to use a different inhaler. So patient safety is essential, and the ultimate goal is asthma control above all. I think that's it's clear that that's the most important thing. However, there are some patients who are open to change or who may actively want to change because they're also concerned about carbon emissions. If a patient does want to change or they've come to the GP and initiated them changing themselves, how can a GP help them review the options? Well, the healthcare professionals within the practice team themselves, as is pointed out in the module, need to have a good understanding themselves of the alternative inhalers and how to use them so they can instruct the patient. The module references a handy guide from NICE about asthma inhalers and climate change, which we'll link to in the description for this podcast. This NICE guide for patients has depictions of different types of inhaler and a description of how they work. Also, our sister publication, MIMS, has a leaf symbol that it puts in print and online, and that denotes the greener inhalers. So that's something else that can help GPs when they're supporting patients to change. Okay, and I think I'm just thinking from the perspective of I was a patient and, you know, I was on board and I want to do change inhalers or, you know, I've got a GP asking me, oh, suggesting a change for an inhaler. I'm going to be then looking at that practice, looking at that GP and seeing what they're doing. I mean, if they've got plastic bottles everywhere, or like where it's obviously plastic, there doesn't need to be plastic. Do you think GPs then sort to be looking at what they're doing in their practice just to show that they're doing stuff to be more sustainable as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, presenting as a practice that's striving for sustainability is definitely going to help. I do think GPs have had a very difficult time since the COVID pandemic in 2020. And for many, it's been about struggling to provide care, the best care they can in the circumstances. I think now, hopefully, things are going to change a little bit. And many GPs do have sustainability in mind and are, I'm sure, doing a lot in their practices already. For those who are just starting out, there are networks such as the Greener Practice Network, that provide help and support from other GPs locally and nationally. And you can use the Green Impact for Health Toolkit to make changes in your practice. And there's a whole raft of changes that you can consider, ranging from energy saving and water use to prescribing and the way that you communicate with your community. So I think the time is absolutely ripe. And I think that the GP community already has a lot going on in this area, which I'm sure is going to be communicated to patients. So thank you very much for joining me, Dawn, and discussing the module. This module and many, many others can be found on the MIMS Learning website. We're now going to go to our interview with Dr. Ravi Ramanathan about the issue of GP appraisal and revalidation. Just to point out, Ravi has asked us to say that the views expressed are his own interpretation of the appraisal system. And joining us today is Dr. Ravi Ramanathan, who's a GP advisor to MIMS Learning and GP Online. He's a GP in Ealing, West London, and an experienced GP trainer, appraiser and trainee programme director. So welcome, Ravi. Thank you, Pat. First of all, Ravi, could you tell us how long have you been a GP appraiser? So I've been an appraiser in northwest London for 14 years now. So I've had the opportunity to undertake 
well over 100 GP appraisals. And I think the question that many GPs might ask is, what is the point of appraisal? So appraisal is a GMC requirement. And the purpose of appraisal ultimately is patient safety. So it's to ensure that doctors who are seeing patients on a clinical basis are safe to practice. The appraisal process is such that you have to undertake an appraisal every year. And after you've done five appraisals, then you're revalidated. And the revalidation is granted by the GMC based on the five appraisals. And once you're revalidated, you will have a license to practice for the next five years. So the ultimate aim is patient safety. But we hope as appraisers that it's also a supportive process. It's an opportunity to talk through, you know, your experiences over that past year and also to check in on well-being and so on. So we're hoping that though the ultimate aim is patient safety, that it's also a supportive process to the doctors who are having the appraisal. Obviously, we've had the COVID pandemic. How have GP appraisals changed over the last three years? So during the COVID pandemic, it was noted that the appraisal process itself, in terms of time and the time consumption and effort required by doctors, to produce the appraisal material was onerous. So during the pandemic, they developed ways of making it less onerous. And now that's become embedded in the appraisal process. So the appraisal process still requires the production of information to demonstrate that you're safe. And that's based on good medical practice uh, statements from the GMC. But the amount of material that you have to record on your appraisal portfolio has diminished. So there is a new appraisal template which everybody should be using and theoretically that template can be completed in about an hour to an hour and a half. It's in comparison to the documentation that was required pre-pandemic and often it was estimated that took eight to 10 hours of preparation, you know, for an appraisal. So the collection of data has become much, much less onerous. An example of that is that you don't strictly have to record the number of hours of education that you're doing. So there is an account of the hours, which in the past you had to produce a minimum of 50 hours of learning per year. So now there isn't account of the number of hours. Most GPs will undertake definitely more than 50 hours of learning. But I think now you just need to select the learning that's impacted on your practice and then be able to talk about that in the appraisal process. So I'm firmly of the belief that the amount of data that you have to produce for the appraisal has diminished you know, significantly And now it's a focus on quality rather than quantity of material. So given that the gathering of hours is not so important, what is most important in the the appraisal? Okay, so there are a number of things that you have to focus on. So the PDP is now very central. Most people have three to four items in their PDP, which they would have 
discussed with their appraiser at their previous appraisal. And usually a good thing to do would be to focus a lot of your learning on the PDP. So, for instance, if you've chosen home and replacement therapy, which is very topical at the moment for general practice, then you should undertake modules around hormone replacement therapy. Now, the type of modules, the type of learning has expanded massively. So there's availability of podcasts, webinars, you know, e-learning modules. Now, face-to-face meetings are coming back as well. So that whole variety is available. And the idea is to demonstrate that you're learning has some impact on your practice. So the PDP is very, very central. And often it's a good idea when you're thinking about the PDP, thinking about the needs of your patients and yourself when you're deciding on the PDP and focusing your learning on that. So that's that's the first thing I would say is the PDP. The second thing is that when you're interacting with patients, obviously you'll come across queries from patients. Your knowledge is limited or it's a new area which you know you have not covered in the past. So the patient will have an unmet need, which is called a pun, and then that will lead to a doctor's educational need, which is called a den. So puns and dens diary, which most of you in training would have heard of, but maybe not so familiar with older doctors so that and that's another very good way of deriving learning needs you know that you can address in your appraisal the other thing is that there are areas such as significant events which may lead to learning needs or or even complaints that may lead to learning needs obviously it's all essential to in appraisal to reflect on any significant event And similarly, it's very important to reflect on every complaint. In fact, that's a GMC requirement. So, you know, those can lead to educational needs, which also need to be addressed. So those are all important areas. The other thing is that we're putting now a lot of emphasis on the mental health of doctors and also on work-life balance, because obviously currently the situation is extremely stressful for doctors because of as you're aware, because of the shortcomings within the NHS. So addressing your mental well-being and work-life balance is very important. So any sort of learning or any sort of, you know, counselling or whatever that, that you're having, it's worth reflecting on that in your appraisal as well. That's interesting. So it's valid to put down any things that you've done to try and improve your own well-being and thus help yourself as a practitioner. Because effectively, if you're learning from these practices and they're affecting your interaction with patients and your well-being in terms of retention and so on, then that is also very valid learning. So, And it's completely valid to, to include that in your appraisal. And in fact, I would go so far as to say for a lot of people that could be a PDP item almost every year. So if I'm a GP heading for my appraisal, how can I make it as easy and as time efficient as possible? I mean, I think I've always believed that the easiest 
way of presenting for appraisal is to undertake your learning on a regular basis and keep a record of that because I know it's incredibly stressful at the last minute writing up an appraisal and trying to discover all the things that you've done over the past year. So I think that's one of the biggest tips and it's a key tip is to try and keep up to date with your appraisal material on a constant basis. Now, obviously, that is very difficult with the demands of the job. I know that you're all working very long hours, often 12 hours a day without any breaks. So, and we do acknowledge how difficult that is. And that's why the new appraisal template has been simplified. And maybe appraisal is not at the forefront of your thinking at all times. And that's very understandable. But I think keeping up to date you know, so setting aside a little bit of time, maybe once every couple of weeks or once a month, you know, just to record what you've learnt is probably the easiest way of doing it. I mean, obviously, when you've chosen particular PDP items, there are lots of resources, you know, that could assist you in addressing that PDP item. An example would be with MIMS and the learning plans, you know, which are structured in such a way that the modules are collected for you for a particular subject, you know, using resources like that. And there's obviously plenty of other educational resources that are available. But I think the key thing, it makes it so much easier if you can keep up to date with it at all times. So if I'm a GP who's taken a break from practice, for example, I've had a sick leave or parental leave, what's the situation for me with appraisal? Okay, so generally it's the case that you have to have an annual appraisal. But obviously if you're sick or you've been on maternity leave or there are other circumstances where you've not been able to work, you need to contact the appraisal team in your area and the appraisal team have a very standard procedure for this. So basically, they'll be able to grant an extension, you know, to when you can have your appraisal. If there are any doubts about the lengths of this extension, then there is an a, appraisal lead who's a doctor who they will consult and the doctor will liaise with you and then they'll be able to agree an appraisal. So if you are having difficulty gathering your appraisal material through uh, for whatever circumstances the best thing is to communicate with your appraisal team and I can tell you from my experience as an appraiser that they are extremely reasonable so you can normally negotiate a very acceptable extension to your appraisal the only time I think where doctors get into difficulty with this is if they disengage completely from the process and obviously if the appraisal team will essentially start chasing you if your appraisal is late and if you don't communicate with them that's when issues arise but when you when you communicate with them they are extremely reasonable because they know the massive pressures doctors are under currently and obviously clearly you know, we want to keep all doctors practicing in a safe manner to them and to the patients, you know, so just communicate with the appraisal team. I think that's the key. 
in that situation. Great, thank you. And what if I'm a GP who is doing low a low volume of NHS work, less than 20 NHS sessions a year? Okay, so this is a situation which has arisen for a huge variety of reasons. So examples are doctors doing private work predominantly, so doing very few NHS sessions, doctors who are abroad but want to maintain their GMC registration, and you know doctors that are unwell who can do less sessions. So there is something called a low volume work template. So effectively, in the low volume template, you have to reflect on how you're keeping up to date, which will ena- enable you to be a frontline GP. So somebody who's capable of seeing acute and chronic conditions in primary care, somebody who's capable of doing home visits, and somebody who's capable of doing out-of-hours work. So the full spectrum of primary care in general practice. So again, if you can show demonstrate that in your low-volume template, then you will be revalidated. But it's important for patient safety to demonstrate that because you're going to be granted a license to practice. That leads nicely on to our next issue, which is the increasing number of GPs who are working on the telephone only. How does it work for them? So again, if you're only conducting telephone only consultations, which is becoming increasingly more common with, for instance, the expansion of Babylon and private telephone-only services, plus doctors who've got particular circumstances which enable them only to work remotely. For instance, doctors who've suffered very significantly from long COVID or have developed very significant complications of COVID. So again, in this case, it reflects back to what we stated with the low volume work. Even if you're doing remote consulting, you need to, in your appraisal material, be able to show that you're capable of everything that a frontline GP is capable of doing. So you need to demonstrate that you're, for instance, keeping up your skills in clinical examination. So maybe your PDP needs to reflect, you know, some aspect of that. So it's obviously your appraiser will be very reasonable, but you need to demonstrate to the appraiser that though you are undertaking remote consultations, you're capable of the full scope of general practice. So finally, Ravi, you're going to be with us at MIMS Learning Live on the 9th of June, 2023. And you'll be playing your usual role, which is to run a kind of appraisal surgery at the MIMS Learning Stand. What kind of conversations do you end up having with GPs? It's normally a very popular stand and I have a lot of GPs who come to ask questions and there's a huge variety of the type of GPs that I speak to at the stand. A lot of it is new young GPs who are confused about the actual appraisal process itself and how it works and what you need to present for your appraisal material and even things like how do you get in touch with your appraisal team locally and how do you get an appraisal. Then there are 
people with particular issues. So I've had people ask about getting back into the system after periods of illness. We've talked about low volume work and also working abroad, those sort of issues. And then there are particular issues around gathering data for things like the multi-source feedback when you're not a partner and so on. So there are lots of different techniques and then different areas that people want covered. And also there are general questions about, you know, what is appropriate material to gather and how to gather that material and how to present, you know, for the appraisal. So it's very individual according to who, but I see a whole spectrum, you know, very new GPs, more experienced GPs, GPs at the end of their careers. And so, yes, we, you know, it leads to a lot of interesting conversations. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you'll get the usual steady stream of customers this year. So we'll look forward to seeing you there. Thank you so much, Ravi, for your time. Just to note that the MIMS Learning website provides CPD for GPs and other healthcare professionals. We've got hundreds of learning modules on hot topics and a handy reflective note-taking facility and a CPD organiser that enables you to store your certificates and keep track of your learning. So do come along to mimslearning.co.uk and have a look around for learning that meets your PDP goals. And of course, please do come to MIMS Learning Live as well to get some live learning. So thank you very much for your time, Ravi. Thank you. Thanks, Pat. For this part of the podcast, I'm joined by Sangeeta Krishnan, who's our specialty editor responsible for oncology, amongst other topics. Hi, thanks for having me, Pat. And by Dawn Powell. Hello. Now, on MIMS Learning, we have research briefings for each of our key medical specialties. These are published monthly and they feature research abstracts and expert commentary from our clinical advisors. So Sangeeta is going to talk about a piece of research that's covered in an oncology briefing. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about the study. It was presented at the European Society of Medical Oncology in September 2022. And it was covered this Jan by Dr. Ilse Oswald in our oncology research briefing. And this study was about air polluted exposure in never smokers that led to lung cancer in this population, which I thought was really interesting. Now, the thing is, everyone knows about the link between pollution and lung cancer. That's not news. But this study is different because it's the first study that shines a light onto the possible mechanisms by which air pollution may promote tumor development. So basically, the researchers found a really good correlation between air pollutant exposure and EGFR mutated non-small cell lung cancer risk. That's basically the gene EGFR was found to be mutated in these patients who, uh, who had also no history of smoking. So this is what I thought was super interesting. Yeah, I have to say, Sangeeta, that is really interesting. But at the same time, as you say, not massively surprising because I look after our respiratory pages and you do see in the respiratory research briefing quite a few times air pollution being connected to lung cancer or to COPD, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. But um, what was actually quite interesting in our February mental health and psychiatry research briefing, there was a link between air pollution and a decrease in functional connectivity on MRI. So it's, it's essentially on MRI, there were changes in the brain related to diesel fumes. I mean, this was a very small study. It's 25 patients 
and the effects were short term and you so you can't really sort of know what this is going to mean for the long term but it is showing that diesel pollution or diesel fumes is affecting other parts of the body not just the obvious organs like the lungs you know we need more research in this area and the authors of this particular study do point out that decrements in brain connectivity i.e changes for want of a better word causes many detrimental effects to the human body and so and i think this just made me think about you know in the pandemic we were told you've got your one hour of exercise to get fresh air and generally if someone's having a bad day you sort of tell them to go for a walk get fresh air you think if they live in a city is this going to be doing more harm than good if we are exposing people to diesel fumes or air pollution I agree. And there's so many other studies, but that, that, that are talking about exposure to pollution and how they're linked to all of these different health issues. Like there was this retrospective study that was published early last year and was covered by Dr. Anshu Sahota in a 2022 March Derma research briefing. And they spoke about how short term exposure to air pollution could trigger psoriasis flares. And there's another study that was, again, early last year in our dermatology research briefing that exposure to air pollution, specifically diesel exhaust particles, led to hyperpigmentation of the skin. And of course, it wasn't in people. They used a skin model, which is skin cells, and they found that there was increased transcription of the genes that produced a melanin, melanin synthesis. And that just shows to me that the air pollution has so many harmful effects and goes all the way from the skin to the genetic level. I think there's a really good reason for expanding the ULEs that they've been doing recently. Yeah, as Londoners know, the ultra-low emission zone aims to reduce the harm caused by polluting vehicles. And road transport is the single biggest contributor of nitrogen dioxide and particulate matter emissions in Greater London. Londoners will know the ULEZ is expanding in August to cover all London boroughs. That's August 2023. But this isn't just London. It's uh, 15 cities have got plans to do something similar, ranging from Birmingham, Glasgow, Liverpool, Bristol, Greater Manchester, Sheffield and Edinburgh, among others. And I think all the evidence we've just been talking about is just a tiny bit of the growing body of evidence that's really overwhelming behind measures such as the ULEZ zones. And I think that really ULEZ resistors don't really have a leg to stand on. I totally agree with you. And I think oncologists and radiologists should be totally aware of these findings because this is so important, how how much pollution can influence your health. And so if a clinician encounters these patients, they will know probably know what to expect if they have these studies on their radar. And there are so many little ways in which we can, I think, contribute to reducing all this pollution and contribute to cleaner air. Maybe let's not oppose the ULEs for starters. And the other thing is maybe we could walk more or ride a bike or carpool or at least take public transport. You know, I think that's the least we can do to hopefully see more improvements in the air quality. All the links to the research briefings discussing the studies mentioned today can be found in the description. Thank you very much for joining us, Sangeeta and Dawn. Thank you so much, Pat. No, thank you. And thanks very much for joining us for this podcast. And we'll look forward to seeing you again in two weeks for the next episode.